0: Alright, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Job. And today we're in Job chapter 40 and 41. We're at the point in the book where if you're not quite sure where to turn, just go to Psalm 1 and go back a couple pages. And if, you're, if you don't have a Bible, um, we're glad for you to use one of the Bibles that we have in the back of the chairs in the row in front of you. If you're using one of those, it's page 445 today page 445, Job 40. Our text will be Job 40 and 41. If you're a guest with us today, let me add my welcome to you. We're so glad that you are here. Trust that you've been blessed already and that you'll continue to be as we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. We're continuing a series. We're near the end of a series now in the book of Job, and if this is your first uh, sermon that you're hearing in this series, that's okay. Hopefully it'll still make sense. Um, but we're actually, this is kind of a two-part. It relates to last week. Uh, think of the story of Job, right? We have, most people know Job 1 and 2. And then Job 42, and maybe Job 38 to 41, kind of. Like, we know God talks to him, and then there's like, oh, okay, sorry, 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 I, I messed up. And then he gets everything back. You're like, all right, great. Um, but as we've been working through it, it's like, well, it's not quite that straightforward, right? There are a lot of difficult moments, a lot of words that are said. And that's why our series is talking to and about God, wisdom from the book of Job. How do we talk to God when life falls apart, when the chaos that we fear comes home, right? How do we talk to God then, and how do we talk about God when that's happening with other people in our lives? How do we do that. And so there's a lot of back and forth between Job and his friends. I'm saying, surely you must have done something wrong to have this happen to you. And many people still believe this is basically how things work today, right? Karma, right? It's going to come back and get you. So you better be good. Don't be mean or mean things will happen to you. Don't be bad or bad things will happen to you. And that's basically their ethic, except they believe in God. So it's God who always blesses the righteous, and blessing looks like health and material prosperity, and he always punishes the wicked, which looks like your life is completely falling apart like Job. So obviously he's the wicked in the minds of his friends. Now of course we know from the beginning and the end that Job is not the wicked. He's actually the righteous. He's blameless. He's someone who fears God and turns away from evil. But along the way we hear Job say Several points, very difficult things, right? It doesn't even do any good to be righteous because look, right? God sweeps away the righteous with the wicked. It doesn't do any good to follow him. Sometimes the psalmists felt this way as well, but those are the moments where you go, Job, you shouldn't say that, and that feeling that we have is right. Job shouldn't say that. God always does what is right And after all the back and forth, and after Elihu pops in to give his thoughts, then in chapter 38 to 41, we get Yahweh himself. The Lord, God, shows up and speaks to Job. Job has longed for this, right? But what he longed for is not exactly what he gets. He's like, I want to talk to him. Uh, But Job does very little talking in these four chapters. This is when God speaks for himself. There's been lots of talk. Talk about God, how he works, lots of chirping. God shows up, he says, this is who I am. And Job has real questions for God that we would even kind of agree, like those deserve some answers, I'd like to know. What's going on? Does God give any answers? No. But he gives Job exactly what he needs. And so last week we considered that God is the creator. He's in charge and he cares for Job. Because that's part of Job's accusation. Is God running the world well? He's questioning God's governance. Who darkens counsel without knowledge was God's question at the beginning of his address to Job. And we can sometimes feel the way that Job does too, right? Have, ever things, have things ever felt out of control in your own life? Have things felt chaotic? I used to know what li- how life worked and what it should be like, but now I'm not so sure. Are there days or decades where it seems like evil is winning. Job certainly wonders this. That's why he's wanted that audience with God. And he got a start on it last week. Didn't go the way he anticipated. God's the one who's asking the questions, and he's going to continue asking the questions in chapters 40 and 41. And so let's look now at God's Word. We'll read a few verses into chapter 42 as well, just to kind of quickly see Job's response, but then we'll come back and sit with that for a bit next week, Lord willing. So, now Job 40 and 41. The first couple of verses are God's finishing his first speech to Job, where he's showing that he's the one who has created everything, even the, the animals that Job will never see or know about. And he cares for them, and he cares for Job. So here's the word of the Lord, Job 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you That your own right hand can save you. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, and his power is in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan? With a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves." Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee for him. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, thank you for your word. Would you speak to us now through it by your spirit? Would you help me as I try to explain what's going on here and what difference it makes that this is in our Bible? And would you help us to see you for who you are in your glory? Would you humble us to the dust and then raise us up and set us on our feet, having saved us, and send us out in your service? God, would you do this for your sake? In Jesus' name, amen. The big idea this morning is this, since God righteously rules over all things, we can trust him. Since God righteously rules over all things, we can trust him. We can trust in the Lord who sovereignly, righteously rules over everything, even the most chaotic creatures and situations imaginable. Right? Last week, we saw, as we considered chapters 38 and 39, That God created everything, that he's in charge, that he cares for us. And Job responds with that acknowledgement we read at the beginning of the text for today. I'm small. I'm not important. I uh, don't have anything else to say in light of such a big God who's the creator and who cares for me. But God is not done. Job's first answer is inadequate. It's not enough just to say, I'm not important. I thought I was a little more important than I am, and I won't talk anymore. God wants more than that from Job, and so he continues. And when God begins to speak here in chapter 40, it's a lot like chapter 38. He says some of the exact same words. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's just what was going on at the beginning of God's first speech, but there is an important difference, and that helps us understand the difference between the two. Because this isn't just like what sometimes we do as parents, right? It's like, you need to go clean your room. Now, if your kids are like mine, the room is like already clean before you finish the words. Not really, but you know. And so you can imagine this scenario, right? Go clean your room. But there's not immediate um, movement. Can anybody? Okay. <laughs> this is right away. That's good. I'm so happy for all you guys. <laughs> right? Say, clean your room. The movement's a little slow. And so what do you say? Clean your room. Sometimes we can think that's what God's doing in chapters 40 and 41. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Better response this time. But that's not what's happening. Okay? This isn't God just shouting a little louder and Job like, ah, let me figure out the right response this time because obviously the last one wasn't enough. And even knowing that I think will help us interpret what is going on in this text God's not just yelling a little louder because Job didn't get it right the first time there's a difference and we see it even in that first difference so in verse 7 he had said dress for action like a man I'll question you. you make it known to me just like 38 but where in 38 it was who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge that obscures my counsel my government of the world Here he says in verse 8. This is chapter 40 in verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you destroy my justice? That is the question. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Because remember, what's Job been saying the whole time? I'm in the right. I didn't do anything wrong. Right? So I'm ready to argue with him. Now I know he's stronger than I am, so he could just tear me apart if he wants to, which is basically what he's already doing anyway. So I want my day in court with him because I am in the right. I've got questions for him. And God says, Will you put me in the wrong? Will you destroy my justice? That's what this is about. Where before it was about, does God care? Is he powerful enough to do things? Yes, he's the creator. He's in charge and he cares. But God righteously rules over all things. And the answer is God does what is right. God does what is right. God is just. He always does the right thing. Now, God has the right to do what he wants with what he has made, right? We talked about the the tower briefly last week. It's like, you know, if the creator destroys it, it's no big deal. He can do whatever he wants, and that's true. But God also does what is right, and he always does what is right. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are perfect justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God could have just said, look, you're wrong. I'm just. I never do anything wrong, so you trust me, right? And just like with children or students at school, that always goes goes great, right? If you're a teacher, they don't get it the first time, just say it again. They'll get it, right? He's like, Rob, you've never been in a classroom, obviously. That is not how that works, right? God could simply assert that he's right, but he doesn't quote Deuteronomy 32. Instead of simply asserting that he always does what is right, or maybe what Job would have expected initially, God defending himself point by point, when I did this, this is what was going on, and this is why it's okay. God does neither of those things. He doesn't just say, I always do right, you listen. And he doesn't say, okay, Job, I understand you got a lot of questions, but here's my defense, right? God doesn't give a defense. Instead, he challenges Job to take a turn on the seat of God's judgment. Look back at verses 9 to 14. It's filled with this language. Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. And what does he do? Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust forever. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God says, Job, you don't even understand what you are talking about you are so far away from understanding what i am doing and he's widening job's perspective eric ortland says so helpfully about this he says god is widening job's perspective so that suffering can occur without the sufferer being blamed as deserving of pain or god being smeared as an uncaring tyrant God is, in other words, going to help Job see that suffering can occur, God can be just, and Job can be innocent all at the same time. And we'll just leave that up for a second and think about it, because this has been the big thing going on in Job, right? Job must have done wrong. He must deserve his suffering. And he says, no, I don't. And so what's the alternative? Well, God must be doing something wrong. Right, So the friends go one wrong direction. Job, you're in the wrong. Job goes in what we're learning now is ultimately a different wrong direction. If I'm in the right, then God must be in the wrong. In his pain, Job has accused God of injustice on a cosmic scale. Especially in chapters 9 and 12, where he says that God sweeps away the righteous with the wicked. That it doesn't do any good to fear God. And in these chapters, God is, as Eric Ortland says, widening Job's perspective. Helping him see. It's blowing up his categories, right? It's like, if you're innocent, you don't suffer. And if the innocent suffer, then God must be bad. As he says here, an uncaring tyrant. But is it possible for an innocent sufferer to suffer to the ultimate, and Job's suffering feels pretty ultimate, and for God to be superintending over that and to be just. Can God be just in someone's suffering and then be innocent too? God's answer here in these chapters is yes. And God does this by showing Job that he is indeed ruling righteously over all. All things, right at this very moment. So God does what is right and God rules over all things. So there's different ways that Christians try to kind of puzzle this out, right? So if God always does what is right, then the bad thing that happened to me can't have had anything to do with him. All right, the disease and the sin against me like, God's up there caring about me, but he's, he can't really do anything about that. Because everyone's free, they make their choices, and some people choose to, to hurt me. And disease is bad, it's chaotic, it's out of control, and it just came home to me this time. I think if, if God cares and things go wrong, then he must not be able to do something about it. But Job actually leads us in the opposite direction. That yes, God cares, yes, he's in charge, yes, he's right and always does what is right, and he actively rules over all things. God will not just let wickedness go. He controls even the most uncontrollable creatures, behemoth and Leviathan. And this is where this is different than last week. Where in chapters 38 and 39, it's all these animals that's like, I know what that is. I know what that is. It has a name that's familiar, right? And we may not see mountain goats very often, but we've, you know, especially now, we've seen them on a television show or something, right? Learning about nature. It's like, great, we can learn through a screen, not have to leave the comfort of our living room to see them. But in this, this is different. Right? Even as I was reading through the descriptions, as you were following along as we read through the descriptions, it's like, ah, uh, what, what is this thing exactly? Right? What is a behemoth? What is Leviathan? And there have been lots of thoughts about that. Had someone ask me already before we started this morning, you're, you're talking about dinosaurs, right? Is that the main, main point of the message? Um, no. What's actually probably a more common interpretation than dinosaurs, which would be some kind of animal that we definitely don't know anything about now because it's extinct. Commentators, uh, many of them have said, "Well, these beasts are a hippo and a crocodile because they're like the closest thing, right? You can't, you know, you're you can't get through. It's not working. They're bigger. They're stronger." We should be scared of them. So it's like, are they a hippo, a crocodile? Are they something else? Are they a creature that has become extinct? Are they a dinosaur? Some sort of dragon? One of them is some sort of dragon, I think. Do they represent something more? Right? Is it just like, Job, I told you about kind of the wild parts of creation. He's already talked about creation that Job can't control, right? Wild beasts, wild donkeys, wild ox. It's like, you can't control them. He's already said, you know, you can't bend them to your purpose. That was chapters 38 and 39. Job gives the insufficient answer. Now God is saying, not just like, well, let me up the ante a little bit. You really can't control a hippo or a croc. And Job's like, oh, now I hate myself. Right? So, what inspires this new response? What would make it where we go from, I've heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you? I would submit it's not a hippo or a croc or even a dinosaur. These descriptions go beyond any creatures known, right? Light comes out of its nostrils. Right? We're supposed to think about a fire-breathing dragon. That's what the words want us to think. We're supposed to think about something that we have no hope of, not only controlling and bending to our purpose, but no hope of standing before. Right? It's like, can you harpoon? Can you javelin? Can you listen? All these possible weapons. Like He laughs at those. But God is in control even of this Leviathan, right? We have this weird, look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 41, right? In the middle of this discussion, right? This, look at this guy, you know, don't lay your, hand, lay your hands on him. Go ahead. You won't do that again, right? Man is laid low even at the sight of Leviathan, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up, right? So this is all about Leviathan. And then the, the words switch. Who then is he who can stand before me? All right, so there's Leviathan. It's meant to point us to something bigger and stronger and more important than Leviathan. Who can stand before me? Who has first given to me? that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. How dare you question my justice? The answer isn't. Check out this hippopotamus. Oh, and this uh, crocodile. So why are these here? What do they represent? And how is what God says here an answer to the accusation about God being wrong? God being unjust. Well, this isn't the first time that we've seen Leviathan in Job. I know it was a while ago, but back in chapter 3. So we have the first two chapters, right? Where Job, righteous, blameless, Satan comes along. God, have you considered my servant Job? Oh yeah, well, he has everything. So, he'll curse you, takes everything, doesn't curse him. Chapter 2, God, have you seen my servant Job? Satan's like, wow, skin for skin, right? Take his health and he'll curse you. Okay, take his health. He doesn't curse still. And then the three friends come, sit with him, then Job talks. right? All of a sudden it's not, um, blessed be the name of the Lord, it's curse the day that I was born. And as he's Cursing the day that he was born and crying out in his pain and agony and loss. In Job 3.8, he says, Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. We're like, okay, whatever, next, next verse, right? But he's referring to something, some creature that he's aware of that you better not wake up in the morning. Now, you might think, yeah, you better not wake me up in the morning. But however bad that would be, or whoever in your life, there is someone I'm thinking of right now, so you better not wake them up in the morning. Or like, do you want to do it today? Right? It's not going to go well. So it's like, if they wake up on their own, we're good. Wake them up. Problems. If Leviathan is sleeping you better not be the one who rouses him. You better not be the one who wakes him up because it's bad and it's going to be bad for you if you do. And again, he's not talking about going down to the local swamp and finding an alligator or on that side of the world, a crocodile. Being like, hey, time to wake up. Oh, he snapped at me. That was weird. And it's not the only place that Leviathan is in the Bible. So we already have this Leviathan is like bad, dangerous, watch out. He can hurt you. Psalm 74, verses 13 and 14, speaking to the Lord. You divided the sea by your might. This is the God who's over everything. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures Of the wilderness. Crush the head. I'm not sure where we've seen that somewhere else in the Bible. But it's something to consider. Here's this creature who's so important and powerful and dangerous and harmful. And God's like, he is under my control. I crush him when I choose to. Or Isaiah 27.1. Speaking specifically of judgment. In that day, the Lord with his hand, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So Leviathan is this chaos creature, absolutely committed to opposing God, yet god will ultimately crush his head and punish him in defense of his people does it sounding familiar what's leviathan supposed to represent the satan at the beginning who's out to destroy job All right the one who says he'll curse you i can make him do it the satan that is on a leash and god uses language Like that, right? Verse 5 of chapter 41 Will you play with him as a bird? This is about Leviathan. Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? That wouldn't go well for the girls, right? But God has this Leviathan on a leash. As bad as he is, as dangerous as he is, there's a limit to what he can do, which accords perfectly with what we saw in the opening chapters, right? Satan's like, let's do this. And God says, okay, that, and no more, no further. And Satan obeys God to the letter, right? Is that what happened in those early chapters? Like Satan, who's bent on destroying Job, bent on destroying God in a way, Right? By getting Job to curse God and die. when God says, you can go up to this limit and no further. You cannot touch him. Satan touches everything he can touch, but not Job. And he comes back to get permission to harm him some more. And even then, God says, you can this far, but you must spare his life. And Satan, who we're used to, like, well, he does whatever he wants. He's out to get us. And he is. There's a limit. And he obeys God uh, better than we do, he's on a leash. And so these questions that God's asking Job about, can you do this? Can you do this with them? Can you do this to the behemoth? Can you do this to Leviathan? God can. All the things that God is questioning Job about, just like in the first one, the questions function the same way. In chapters 38 and 39, it's like, where were you? When you know, there was a path made for the lightning. It's like Job wasn't there, but who was? God right? It's like, can you do this? Can you put him on a leash? Can you harpoon him? Can you tie a little rope around his snout and lead him around? God can, and God does. So behemoth, and you're like, well, who, if, if Satan is Leviathan, who is behemoth? Many commentators who've taken the position that Leviathan is Satan is that behemoth is death. The behemoth is understood to be death, who's also treated in the New Testament as an enemy, right? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This animal, behemoth, is cast as insatiable. He keeps on eating. It's like, hmm, Death is like that. So, behemoth is understood to be death, who's insatiable and a terrible enemy. And Leviathan is the Satan from the beginning of the book. And so, what is the message that Job takes away? God is at war with them, and he will triumph. God wins over the craziest chaos that is absolutely opposed to his will that can possibly exist. God wins. So Job has accused God of being un- unjust and wants to ask some questions, but God has some questions of his own. Who can stand before God? That's the biggest question that rises out of this text. If we can't stand before a Leviathan, how can we ever stand before God? Who can put God in their debt where God owes me something, like an explanation? Who is strong enough and wise enough to run the world with justice? Who is strong enough to control the chaos, the evil in this world? Job is not, and neither are we, but God is, and he does. In fact, he's so sovereign over evil in this world that he uses... Without sinning, he uses evil acts to accomplish his saving purposes. Did you know that? God uses even evil, sinful acts by real people who are free in their choices and who think they're doing something to harm someone. God uses even those acts under his sovereign control to accomplish his saving purposes. One of the really big ones in the Bible is the story of Joseph. You're familiar with that one? Comes from a great family. Everyone gets along, loves one another. (laughs) Right? And his wonderful brothers, who are jealous of him, sell him into slavery. You're like, wait a second, you said, right, you get it. He's sold into slavery, and then in many ways, that's just the beginning of his misfortunes, right? Until at the end, everything turns around, and now he's the second in command of all of Egypt, and using that position of power to store up grain because there's a huge famine coming, and they use the seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of nothing, And the whole world is coming to Egypt for grain. Part of that whole world, those brothers, all right? They show up. Once he reveals himself to them, hey, I'm Job. They're like, oh, man, we're in so much trouble, right? We never thought we'd see you again. And here they are. They've already been bowing before him, just like Joseph's dreams had prophesied. Like, all the things are coming true. And they're like, oh, no, we're in so much trouble, And what does Joseph say to them? God sent me here before you to preserve life. Joseph, do you remember? You remember what happened? Like, they were mean. They were bad. You got it. This is your moment. Off with their heads. And it would happen. And he says, don't be afraid. God sent me here before you. And then they kind of believe him. And then later... Their dad dies, and they're like, great, now Joseph's really going to take care of us. And they come to him again, oh, please, please. And he's like, guys, I said it before. And he tells them in Genesis fifty twenty, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The same act, right? They meant it for evil, and it was. The 10 to 12-year-olds are out, but teens, don't. this is not like it's okay to sell your siblings into slavery because God will make it all work out in the end, okay? No matter how much you feel like it. And I'm sure you never would. But was that an actual evil act? Yes, right? It doesn't like make it okay that they did that even though God like somehow knew how to use it, right? But the way it's talked about is that this was actually what God did to get Joseph in the right place at the right time, right? In fact, if you think of his other misfortunes, he and the whole world needed every single one of them to happen in exactly the sequence and the time that they did right? If he'd never been lied about in Potiphar's house, he would have just been a really important guy making Potiphar rich and never would have been second in command. If he had been remembered earlier in prison instead of forgotten for two years, like you're like, you feel the injustice, right? All the injustices to Joseph who hadn't done really anything wrong. He's faithful the whole time then all of a sudden at just the right time he's remembered and he's brought forward God meant it that exact same thing for good God can do that but what about us, right? Because we're we're more like the brothers than Joseph. We're more like the friends than Job. We're the we're the evil. Like if we say, okay, great. Now we know God actually takes care of things. He always stamps out the evil. He puts them in their place. He judges them forever. If we're honest about who we are, that is not super great news for us initially, because we have all participated in the chaotic evil of this world through our anger, our lying, our impatience, our cruelty. Right? Kids learn it in VBS. Romans 3.23. Right. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But praise the Lord, that verse ends with a comma, not a Period. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God always does what is right because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can this God who always does what is right and demands that everyone else do what is right, how can any of us go free? Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross so that God can be just. He's seen to be doing the right thing. And now because Jesus took the punishment for us, he can call us just. He's just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus, through his death, overcame death and Satan. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus became human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong death slavery. And so this points to the ultimate moment of God's victory over Satan. Joseph's story is a drop in the bucket compared to Jesus. Who planned and participated in the death of Jesus? It's a long list, right? Judas, the chief priests, Pharisees, Herod, Pilate, the soldiers, even the crowd. Was there any sin committed that day? a little bit, right? Let's kill God. It's about the worst thing you could imagine committing. And tons of people were in on it. But what was happening? What was happening as Jesus died on the cross? Exactly what God had planned from eternity to save sinners like you and like me. Acts 2.23, as Peter is preaching at Pentecost, so he's preaching to people, many of whom would have been there, some who had participated. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in chapter 4, as they're praying, as they're facing more persecution, saying, don't speak in this name anymore. So truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What powerful provision what majestic mercy was on display in our sovereign, suffering, saving God. Right? Here is suffering, where the sufferer did nothing wrong, and God is at work doing what is right, all for God's saving purposes. So God is just. He always does what is right. And he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it is true now, as was quoted earlier today from 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus paid that penalty on the cross. It is now right for God to forgive us and to cleanse us when we come to him. Since God righteously rules over all things, we can trust him. Satan can't go any further with Job than God allows. And Satan can't stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission. And Jesus is on his throne even now interceding for us. The same God who ruled in the book of Job and on the cross is ruling even now. God rules over all things, even the craziest evil chaos imaginable, so we can trust him. Christopher Ashe puts it this way, this God who knows how to use supernatural evil to serve his purposes of ultimate good can and will use the darkest invasions into my own life for his definite and invincible plans for my good in Christ. We can trust in the Lord who sovereignly, righteously rules over all things, even the most chaotic creatures and situations imaginable. Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son maybe we're familiar with like god god works out everything for good it's like okay great things will go the way that i want and then they don't it's like god's not just he's not doing the right thing he's not keeping his word but what's his word That he works things out for good. What's that? Good. That we would become like Christ. And as we see him for who he is, the one who suffered in our place, who gave his own life for us and is ruling over every situation we face, even now for our ultimate good, we can and we must trust him. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the provision you have made in Christ. Thank you that you indeed rule over all things and you do it just right. Would you help us to trust you, to walk with you all our days, that as we face chaos and evil, Would we remember that just like you worked things out before, you are working out all things even now for our likeness to Christ and to bring us home ultimately to be with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And would you help us to rest in you, our sovereign, suffering Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.